0: Hello, this is Deb, host of Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today, I'm happy to say that we're going to be talking to Ted Rowe. Ted Rowe, who is the co-founder of NARCAP, uh, with, who also was founded with Dr. Richard Keynes, is also the director of the UAP Medical Coalition and is currently working on a program with AIAA, on aviation safety and the scientific study of UAPs. Ted is also a martial artist, photographer and artist. Thank you very much for joining me today, Ted.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's good to see you, Deb.
0: Okay, so I'm very happy um, to get this chance to give this information to people about yourself, about the projects that you're working on, I feel like a lot of people are missing the boat, so to speak, because they're not fully aware of all the different things that have to do with aviation safety. Um, but one thing I noticed that I missed is I found out in researching for this interview today that you're an artist, and I didn't know that. <laughs> so let's start with that. What is, what is your medium? What are you doing with that?
1: Well, I, I, I dabble in a lot of things, but pr- for the last few years, it's been carving. Uh, carving stone carving wood um, and and that's that's just kind of exploring what that's like you know uh, 3d rendering you know um it's 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 satisfying and, and um, particularly when you work with stone you know it, uh, it, it's very interesting and you just kind of let the stone tell you what it's going to be and then just sort of let it come out
0: you know, a lot of people who are creative say it's like a meditative state when we create things
1: yeah absolutely i i go into another place and let the muses drive me you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh sometimes it, 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 i'm pretty satisfied with what i what i do and other times well
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> i know where i wanted to go it's supposed to be a dog
0: you know okay <laughs> We can make it into something else. Just a little conversion coyote, maybe. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. We just work on the ears more, you know.
0: But, right. Uh, now, yeah. is this art that you do, um, do you share that with people or is that just for yourself?
1: Well, a little bit of both. Um, I, I have a part of me that's kind of interested in um, shamanic practices. And uh, uh, so recreating artifacts uh, native artifacts, you know, American and otherwise, um, they're related to religious practices are interesting to me. I learned how to make chinupas, which are the the long pipes that uh, the Cheyenne and the Northern people, um, uh, smoked with and, and, uh, uh, and I, I made a lot of other things. Some of them I sell, they're more utilitarian. Um, others I just, I, they just sit on my shelves. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I, have, I was going to ask, I didn't include this in the intro, but I had heard that you had also studied um, Buddhism. Do you consider yourself to be a Buddhist or just a spiritual person?
1: Well, at this point, I don't even, I don't consider myself either. Really? Yeah. It's, it, you, you, if you're going to be something, then it's not something you're, you know, I, 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 I studied Buddhism and uh, learned about objective awareness and insight and learned mm-hmm. how to apply it in mindfulness and and on the track of learning how to be more mindful all the time about everything
2: mm-hmm. and i'll tell
1: you the, the further down the road you get with that the more interesting it becomes you start noticing what your mind's doing when it does it you know okay. and that's a, a powerful bit but in the end you lose these labels and ideas the you know it's a practice that that takes you beyond what it's called and what it's what it's supposed to be and it becomes your your view you know so in that sense i don't really refer to myself as a buddhist or a spiritual person i'm just in a state of constant transcendence you know rising mm-hmm. up you know
0: mm-hmm. so. and, and i've said before i wish i could be a, a yogi and just spend time transcending every day and have people bring me food <laughs> that
2: would be amazing
1: <laughs> uh, it's i've lived that actually i i spent mm. I was a homeless person, houseless person for mm-hmm. probably six, seven years here uh, in Hawaii. I lived between Hawaii and here in Alaska. And uh, I, uh, I went deep into Buddhist meditation, looking deeply at the Satipatthana Sutta, mm-hmm. that, that particular teaching on mindfulness, um, and uh, trained myself on the beach down on South Kona coast and just sat and did long meditation and worked at the foundations of the practice as, as the Buddha instructed, you know, it, it tells you very clearly how to, how to do it. So I did it that way and sat and listened for the effectiveness of it. And in the process, people started bringing me food. I, I would train, I, I study sword. I'm a martial artist. I, so I'd practice doing sword, which is, which is a, a Buddhist skill. Uh, and, and then, uh, um, uh, and meditate and I do this through the night, you know, uh, on these quiet beaches and uh, uh, in the morning, there'd be a plate of fish or a half a half a bunch of bananas or something sitting there waiting for me when I get up. No idea who brought them. Uh, I always ministered to the community. Uh, I teach free diving, so I taught a lot of the uh, the people there that needed to learn it, how to do it safely in return for nothing you know I, I counsel and then i was i was brought in by the priestess uh the local priestess there to be part of her process I'm not again i'm not a religious person not a spiritual person i don't really know what that is but um but i was pulled into all of this and brought into community uh and it, it was all based on their their per- perceptions of how things ought to be uh and it, and for me it was just extremely gratifying i spent six seven years with that and the priestess passed um and my role in the community kind of shifted a little bit which is no big deal it's the way things change but um, um it was a powerful moment and and it, it started with taking uh, buddhist practice to heart you know to sit down and do it you know and, and not worry about being it not worrying about what it's supposed to be or what you think it is just do the practice of training the awareness
2: yeah
0: you know i often think of yoda who in the star wars and how he kind of parallels some buddhist teachings and what mm-hmm. came to mind is do or do not there is no try <laughs> when you say right. that yeah That's i mean right. and and did you know that some people have created a religion out of yoda and mm-hmm. the jedi just yeah. just a side note
2: <laughs> so well,
1: I, don't, I don't i don't have a problem with any of that i, I yeah I studied Musa Shindenru and I understand that overlap, particularly with our uninitiated younger males, they need to have some sense of viability as in the physical way, and that gives them guidelines and a pathway to go, just like any of the other martial mm-hmm. schools um, that are worth anything. Um, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think that's that's kind of natural. It is so, a
0: feeling. So I have um, a curiosity about Hawaii, um, since you've sort of... Um, been part of the community there what it what is the sense that you get of how they respond to things like the phenomenon mm. what do you what is the input that they give you about their experiences with the phenomenon
1: well the the, the stories i I've, I've heard i've sat with the priest kumu and the stories i've heard is that it's a relatively new experience and they aren't really resolved on them um, there's some um, stories about light phenomena in the islands Uh, it's said that if if you're pursued by a ball of light that it's somebody's jealousy it's it's driven by by malevolence in a person in your acquaintance you know and and that that's literally the heat of their anger following you um but then there's other perspectives on it too they talk about the minahuni and uh the night marchers uh, apparently, my property is very near uh, uh, a Minahuni trail where suppo- Minahuni are supposedly small statured uh, Hawaiian warriors, I guess, or warrior clans that, that never were integrated, that live kind of feral in, in the jungles of, of Hawaii. And that, at least that's the mythology around it.
2: You know, it's
0: so interesting because this brings to mind, I had studied um, indigenous Australian history and they talked about, they passed along the story of something that existed at the same time as their ancestors. And they, and things that they were talking about were probably what people call prehistoric animals that their ancestors dealt with. And recently I just found out about the hominids that were 3.5 to 4 feet tall. Hmm. And I wonder if that story—and I'm not going to say it right—the Menahuni is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, has something to do with them encountering some of those hominids?
1: Almost every culture seems to have uh, a, a mythology around small statured beings, uh, and they're they're usually magical related. You know, in Europe they were the fae, right? In England and Ireland, and and in Hawaii they're Menahuni. There was a uh fossil remains of small statured people found in indonesia uh, that um were kind of interesting in that that perspective and certainly yeah,
0: and, and the philippines yeah, so, so and it's and the thing that makes me think about that being very interesting for hawaii is in both spots those were found on islands mm-hmm. those remains were found on islands so i wonder if someone one day might find some in hawaii
1: it's entirely possible. The place isn't really forgiving uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to remains, you mm-hmm. know, when, uh, I, I have animals, right. And they pass at times on my property and, and they're gone quickly, very quickly. Wow. Uh, it, uh, so there isn't a, a, a huge fossil footprint in Hawaii. You know, it, it, what we find are artifacts, you know, we find tools, we find, um, remains of settlements, this kind of thing. And, um, uh, uh, up in the highlands, you know they used to use uh, canoes to capture fresh water and and in the lava tubes so they would slide these canoes back into the lava tubes and and mm-hmm. then allow them to capture water and that's where in the highlands they would go to gather water mm-hmm. if they didn't, if they weren't near a running source everything's rain driven there so water's an issue so so every now and then they find one of these things and they can be quite old uh, so. You know you hold out for artifacts not so much for for bones
0: okay well you know that's the the flip case in some locations where they can find a lot of bones and almost no artifacts and they they are not sure of what era of human or i should say or hominid because they're not all human um they're dealing with because they they don't have the artifacts to enforce what time period Mm -hmm. it was so it's really interesting But they do basically decide once they find artifacts, they're dealing with some kind of human.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They're usually Stone Age or something because they're durable.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I I love this part. And I feel like this topic requires us to look at so many different things. And one of them for me is anthropology. It just has to be considered. Understanding humans in general has to be considered Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the phenomenon. So. So um, I wanted to uh, get to how you ended up in NARCAP. Um, how did you get involved with NARCAP and uh, Richard Haynes and everything to do with that?
1: Well, it, um, I'll give you the short version. I, uh, um, in 1990, I, I was watching CNN and I saw Major General Wilfred DeBrower come on a couple of one-and-a-half or two-minute segments asking the world who these aircraft belonged to that his F-16s, his NATO forces couldn't catch. And he had uh, uh, some video and it showed um, a target going from 10,000 feet to 400 feet to 14,000 feet and doing it in four seconds, and it, it caught my attention because I remembered as a kid. we I had a UFO story, right, with my grandparents. We had a close encounter when I was a kid, five years old. A flying saucer came up in front of the car. And nobody knew what it was. And that was one of the oddities that the family would kind of kick around, you know, when I was there. And um, but I had more than that. I had and, 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 and in the while I was pondering this story, I realized that I hadn't really thought about it, but that I had seen more than I was above the statistical average for exposures of that kind, you know, and, and it sparked an interest in me. So I started studying because the time I I had this realization, I was 30 years old. And it occurred to me that, you know, hey, there could be more to come, you know, and I should try and understand this. And um, so I started digging in. And for the next seven or eight years, I I studied um, everything I could get my hands on. I read everybody, uh, watched every at the time blockbuster video I could check out on the subject, kept running into Dr. Richard Haynes and uh, liking what I was hearing. He seemed the most grounded and stable of the voices that I was hearing around the subject at the time, Um, which is an interesting moment because uh, I started having experiences again over the course of about 18 months. I had four exposures and the last one was really blatant and uh, happened right in the middle of downtown Oakland. And um, it it, uh, involved a lot of, physics uh technical aspects that I I got a pretty good look at um and it made me really sick (laughs) it it uh it was it was very uncomfortable being me after that happened and uh, um I couldn't go outside without looking up for years um and and this went on for a few months anyway and and uh out of desperation I wrote a short terse little email to the PR office at Ames Research Center, NASA Ames Research Center down in Palo Alto. So, at the time I was living on a sailboat in Alameda and uh, um, Dr. Richard Haynes showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and very quickly, I might add, um, interviewed us all. Uh, it, it was a, a bizarre synchronicity. And then, You know what's
0: really bizarre about that? The, I had just spoken to Tim Ferrario, um, who worked with Ted Phillips. And the mm-hmm. same thing sort of happened to him. He really mm-hmm. admired Ted Phillips. And who did he end up with? Ted Phillips. I I feel like I just want to put out into the universe that I would like to work with Hal Putoff. <laughs> hey, you know, it, <laughs> just do it. Put...
1: You know? I, yeah. I, I was very interested at the time. Um, so so the, the rest of the story is that I had a friendship with Dr. Haynes for uh, a few months. Uh, He came to me with an idea he had for a retirement project, which was NARCAP. And um, um, we kicked it around, sort of tweaked it a little bit, and then ran with it. And so for the last 22 years, I've been the director of that program. So that's how that goes. Um,
0: Well, can you please tell people what that program is real quick before you... (laughs) Oh, NARCAP.
1: Okay. NARCAP is the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena. Uh, we collect pilot cases uh, involving uap and we're particularly interested in aviation safety cases Um, we felt that that was probably the most relevant way to get some leverage on 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 the subject in the public domain that that i mean who could be against aviation safety right so um we we did it that way we defined and introduced the UAP term unidentified aerial phenomena at the time that the vernacular was UFO. And so we we introduced that term so that our, our scientists and engineers that we were working with, we had NASA underground, a lot of guys that were moonlighting with us that um, uh, we wanted to protect them. And, and we wanted to give them terminology that was neutral. So we adopted the UAP term and that, that sort of went out. Podesta and his crew picked it up and others did. And uh, Leslie Keene, of course, promoted it and so on. So it ended up becoming kind of the, the, the term du jour at the moment, which I think we're going to end up growing pretty quickly. We need to get beyond it. It's too big.
0: Yeah, um, I, have a th- um, I have a theory on a major reason to do that, <laughs> by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so... I think we should switch to just anomalous phenomenon. And one of the reasons I think that is because it starts with an A. And if you do any searching on this topic anywhere, where does you end up? Right at the bottom, right? So I think anomalous phenomenon we will find things much faster on YouTube. We'll find, you know, in bibliographies. Anomalous phenomenon start with the A. That's what I think.
1: Okay. No, I let, but hey, you know, I'll, I'll throw that in the pile. I know we're kicking that around it some of the other processes I'm, I'm working with. Um, but uh, I wanted to say that at the time, just prior to the, the, the kind of the cluster of exposures that I had, that led to NARCAP being founded, um, I had been very much immersed in uh, studying shamanic practices, I was very interested in, in uh, psi function. And how that kind of integrates into the mythologies or the methodologies around, uh, psi practices and the use of entheogens, right, um, cactuses and, and mushrooms and this kind of thing that, that are, are alleged to facilitate these uh, uh, abilities. And so I was curious about all of it, and was I did a lot of scholarly work, I did a lot of reading, you know, and and searching, and then. Um, um, then I took a couple of uh, doses myself to see what the process and the experience was like. I can't say that any of that made a difference. But suspending my disbelief around the subject opened doors. Um, and it wasn't very long after that when I started having UAP exposures, when things were, when I was yeah. dealing with close expo- close exposures. So yeah. I, I, I think there's a relationship. I, I don't know.
0: I've actually been looking at that because I'm interested in understanding some of the science behind these things, some of the medicine. And I was looking at DSM. I'm oh not DSM. Sorry. DMT. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm, DSM is mm-hmm. the book that, for psychology. <laughs> but um, DMT, I was looking at DMT um, because people have entity encounters so much. Um, and a, a lot of people say that that experience is more real than real and if you speak to people like grant cameron he identifies a lot of experiences that people have are not even physical so there's some doorway indicated by dmt some doorway indicated by psychedelic um use um and then i think once you've gone through that doorway (laughs) you realize the door is open and there's no going back
1: and you don't need the the modality anymore yeah it shows you something and then you move on. I, 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 don't, I, don't need, I don't need any of that stuff, you know, at this point. I, um, the whole point was to, to show you what was possible, what your mind could do, you know, mm-hmm. and then step back and let it do it. You know, with, you don't need an adjunct. Um, I, I had a clinical exposure and a, a group exposure to ayahuasca uh, while I was in Hawaii. It grows wild there, the, the, the vine and the leaf. I have it on my property growing wild. Um, and, um, uh, of course that's a DMT delivery system, you know, uh, similar to mushrooms. It's really similar to mushrooms, but the, uh, um, but the whole point is that it's showing you something it, it, it's, it's showing you something that you hadn't really considered that your brain can do, you know, and then once, once you get through that, just let it go, you know, don't, don't cling to it. And the same, same thing goes with meditation. The Buddhist practices teach the same thing you and and you don't need a modality really you need an awareness and so you train that awareness you know with your insight and then you and and knowledge can come in a variety of ways at a variety of levels you know
0: yeah i'm I'm definitely a meditator um and i i reached like different places that i imagine would be very similar to if i had been someone who had done psychedelics right um just really bizarre occurrences not something that i was really controlling like or guiding you know it was i never followed the rules of meditation like guided meditations or anything like that i just gave myself a location to start focusing on Mm -hmm. and then strange things happened and um i feel like they've done some research on meditation and psychedelics but but meditation they've done research and they've shown activity in different parts of the brain that indicates something else is going on um and they still haven't quite figured out what that is
1: you know meditation is um i i'm i'm kind of a a purist with the idea of of it i follow the instructions on how to do it and and those instruct as taught by the buddha and his acolytes and and the emanations that came off of his uh those who followed his teachings and achieved the way he did people like jetson milarepa uh, from the tibetan schools and so on he was the he was the first known tibetan buddha to arrive from gotama's lineage in tibet um so you, you look at their teachings and you look at the way they teach and how they. How they prepare that awareness it follows rules it's it's not something where you um like like for example what you're describing is similar to the way you induce lucid states where you induce lucid dreaming right by you sit and you allow imagery to arrive and to leave and arrive and leave and eventually you step through it and you're in an awareness right in a place and uh uh, that isn't that isn't the kind of meditation that, that is taught you know to train your awareness okay that's that's a different and it's a it's a it's a strict practice i don't want to say that it it, it, it's you know but generally you you follow the, the rules and you go through the trainings it takes seven to 12 years for a monk to to go through the practices and arrive on the other end of it more or less successfully um so
0: anyway i know i we keep going on so many tangents but since we're on meditation what do you think of the Monroe Institute and their uh, hemi-sync stuff? <laughs> what do you think no, of it's their... In, it's interesting. Their you know, That's
1: that stuff's been out for a while, you know, the synchro energizer. And they've had a few different devices out that basically what they do is they, they provide different types of stimulus in different rhythms and at different frequencies to, um, you know, both visually, audibly tactilely stimulate your your brain into certain brain brain states right alpha delta theta beta and uh um uh they they do it by machine and and that's a good way to go you know and then integrate that with the practice there i don't see anything particularly wrong with that either um it's not something that i i follow you know particularly i'm 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 more into the self-contained version of it you know and and seeing myself be able to express it
0: i I feel like everyone has almost like um a vibration that works for them right and one person's vibration is not going to be the same as another Mm -hmm. like um i've had conversations with people in the past about how just touching the earth makes people feel something um there are biorhythms that i respond a lot to um that i found out the the composer is actually trying to um, increase neurotransmitters in his music. Um, and other music, nothing. Like the HemiSync stuff, I got nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, you know, everyone's kind of treating themselves like a tuning fork, trying to find the right sound. And once you find it, you're going to get yeah. somewhere.
1: Yeah. There, yeah. Definitely. There's, there's, you know, there's that perspective. The other perspective is that you do it and you do it now. And, and that's kind of the way I went at it but but I, I lost everything right after the market collapsed um, I wasn't in the red but I wasn't in the black anymore and uh, uh, I had time and it, it was a, the first thing I felt when I when I realized it was over you know what the way I'd been living was over relief oh my god relief I don't have to worry about my stuff anymore I don't have to think about anything I've got my I got my critters and I got me. You know, and I got this beach and I have these lovely people and relief. And then now I have a chance to practice the way I should practice and uh, take care of some of the things that I've neglected in my personal training.
0: Yeah, I do. I do feel like I feel like we made a lot of mistakes as humans getting captured by material things. um, And we're not really living like, you know, as I said before, some people, they touch the earth. And it's very rare for us to get to do that. Mm-hmm. It's very rare for us to get to sit outside. And and it's funny because I just spoke to Cheryl Costa, and she said that you know if you want to see UFOs, go outside. But like like the, that like the statistically the numbers increase when people are going outside. It's very simple. But yeah. even even with my avid interest, I'm still not outside that much, other than going to work. <laughs>
1: Well, and there's the truth of it, and experience is part of it, so you learn to recognize what's out there, you know, and you learn to tell the difference. Uh, I got a, I got a call the other night. Damn, it's right over my house. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, okay, so what are you seeing? Well, it moves, but it's very limited in the movement,
2: mm-hmm. but it's moving. And, mm-hmm.
1: and I said, and it's right over your head. He was in Kansas, um, so I'm thinking Venus,
2: mm-hmm. and I'm thinking
1: autokinesis his heartbeat is rattling his eyeball Mm -hmm. and it's only moving to the limit of the rattle of the eyeball. Right. So Mm -hmm. it looks angular and short choppy movements. Right.
2: Right.
1: You call me back later. Oh, I think it's a star. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, people can be fooled, but, but it's about experience. You have to get out there and look. Um, I, and, and honestly though, based on my own exposures, when it happens, it's unambiguous, you know, I I've been within 15 feet of the things, you know, there's, it's not some maybe it is maybe it isn't kind of situation it's Mm. it's there it is run like hell you know (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah, i was talking about that today about um the brain is telling you um something might not be right or having a perception issue that can trigger that fear emotion you know that something is that you might not be fully able to absorb is happening and then the emotion of fear gets triggered. So, yeah, if that run like hell feeling is happening, your brain's trying to tell you either I, I'm not understanding this, or there's something I'm seeing that you need to get away from.
1: The third point is you have prior experience,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you're triggering on on that. You know, it's part of it's complexed around your issues, right? And and now right. you're triggering on that. And I, I think I'm a little bit of that because I have I have numerous exposures over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Some, some of them were not okay you know and
2: right.
1: uh there was uh physical injury in one of them and um you know there's just a part of me that that up until uh, the context changed and i became a researcher and then when all of a sudden now i i'm i'm a trained observer i've been working with Haynes and Bali and heish and all of these guys and learning how to apply science and objectivity and what the, the method is to document and how to think about it. And working with people like Dr. Teodorani, Massimo Teodorani and others, uh, Professor Strand at Hesdalen, all these guys who have experience in it, like me, you know, started learning how to change my perspective. And then the last time I had a really close one, I I, I was I was wide awake and wasn't running. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't in fear the way I have been. You
0: know, right. Now. And I think it probably helps. Like, Again, it's your brain is starting to know how to put that stuff together and not trigger the emotional response. Um, I, well, I think part, it's
1: of it, in- part of it too, Deb, I'm sorry to interject here. Okay. Part of it too is that there uh, it's the context of the exposure. Um, when, when, when they unambiguously approach you, like you're driving mm. down the road in a metropolitan area. I, I've had this happen to me where I'm on a freeway in the middle of a, eight and a half million people, right? And it singles me out and it's right in front of my car. That's different from being somewhere where people tell you that they're seen and that they come and go and then being there and it came and went. And you saw what people described to you. So, but the ability to, to. Stand your ground and not switch back to the old fear mode when that happens. that's the thing I've learned to suppress a bit.
0: Yeah, I have to. I have to take note that there are a lot of people who study this who I find out are experiencers, and some of them are only recently coming out as experiencers. Mm-hmm. Um, the author of UFOs and Nukes, for instance, Robert Salas, um Jim Semivan. Uh, even Elizondo has said that he's seen something. Gary Nolan. All of these people have had personal experiences. And I feel like once that happens, it hooks you. Once you have something happen that you can't explain, you're stuck on it. You know, like, I, I mean, granted, there's probably plenty of people who aren't, who aren't talking about it, who just move about their day. But the people who are usually have had experiences.
1: Well, I, I think there's an issue there too about trauma. It, it's the kind of experience and what because that can drive you to just and that's what happened to me. I literally threw my life away to go after this. It terrified me and 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 it and I said it induced wonder, but it was the wonder of terror. It wasn't you know wonder of awe, you know. And um, and I found myself undertaking risk behaviors. Um, to try and recreate coming out on top of risky situations, uh, I used to compare it to swimming with big sharks in open water. Well, now I'm a so I went out, and learned how to be a free diving instructor, and went out and started running into sharks in open water.
0: It's almost like the one of the strategies I teach um, clients for handling fear is face the fear, right? So it's almost like taking control back on it's yourself. An yeah. Your, yourself and all these other people. Um... You're trying to,
1: you're trying to recreate that moment where you were incapable of protecting yourself and revamp it in a way where you are.
2: Mm-hmm. And so here I am,
1: I'm, I'm five feet nose to nose with a tiger shark that's 15 feet long. And guess what? It doesn't feel like that at all. It had nothing to do with my alien experiences. Uh, it was remarkable. It was breathtaking. I was beautiful. Uh, First of many. Um, Mm -hmm. I spent, I've been in the water for most of 15 years in Hawaii. So, um, and I I teach free diving, breath hold diving. So Mm -hmm. we're often in deep water and we're often just a couple of us and there's no tanks or bubbles and boats or anything. So whatever swims by is not intimidated, just curious or hungry. And, uh, so the encounters we have are, you know, your awareness comes out. You start paying attention. Um, you start aware, uh, being aware of your mortality uh, and, and, it's, and its dependence on your awareness and
2: mm-hmm. your ability
1: to assess what's going on around you and make good judgment calls and protect the people you're with, Make protect them. Often I have students and they're not watermen, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I'm taking people out into uh, looking for pelagic animals to get pictures of them, open water, blue water. We're hunting for them to get in the water with them kind of things and so when you're you're making judgment calls there too and um but none of that is it's not the same it's not the same as that trauma when it comes up to you and and it's not in your control you don't know what it is there's a stigma about even talking about it
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and i climb out of the water and tell my shark story not so much with the other ones and and
0: you know and it, and that's unfortunate because even when it comes to sharks, right, we have created suits for people to wear to increase their protection. We have created cages for people to go into if they want to film them. Mm-hmm. We've done specials and documentaries about them and really scrutinize them. I know, and I'm not an, a shark expert, that if some sharks are flipped over, they're just, they freeze essentially, right? Although I yeah. don't think I could do that to a great white. I'm tonic a
1: immobility, they call that.
0: <laughs> right. So we don't know anything about um, the phenomenon in that sense. We just yeah. haven't had the ability to scrutinize it that way. And even what we do know, some people think could be a trick, a manipulation of a, a guise of what the reality is. So it's very complicated. Like some people think that we're only just being shown something. Um, and whatever is actually behind it, it might be even scarier. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I've been told. So, you know, there's, there's, well,
1: a lot. there's, there's, you know, like you say, there's a lot of perspectives on this. Um, right. Uh, I, from my own perspective, I keep it real simple. I'm a martial artist and I'm a swordsman
2: mm-hmm.
1: and everything about me is boundaries and, and all of my emotions are geared at boundaries, mm-hmm. love, anger, hate, all of that has to do with boundaries and how they're dealt with and um uh and martial arts is a training of to protect yourself from violations of your physical boundaries and um everything that i've encountered in my life has been an absolute disrespect for boundaries Mm -hmm. Uh, geopolitical boundaries personal boundaries psychological and physical boundaries uh and as i've said in other settings um the incidents are are sterile you can project anything you want on them, but, but they're inevitable. I mean, if you're on the list, you're going to get tagged, you know, and there's um, that's something you can't stop. Um, people come back with all kinds of stories, but you can be manipulated. Your psychology can be manipulated physically, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. with, with uh, emanating radiation microwave or whatever. And yeah, other I,
0: I tend to believe there's some kind of technology behind that manipulation i really do even the communication
2: mm-hmm. and
0: i think that uh what is happening with studying the um caudate and the potanum is actually really important because i think we're going to start understanding a little bit more about how that manipulation is happening um so i think well you know that's why we need to continue to work on that uh medical aspect which is why, of course, you founded the UAP Medical Coalition also.
1: With your wonderful help. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think we're going to leave out my role in it because it's all about you today, Ted. So, Well, (laughs) well, I I managed to
1: pull together a terrific team who who have uh, stepped up in an area that I'm not particularly strong in, but I can see a need for. And uh, the idea was to... Um, inform and support the mental health and medical professional community, and to encourage research by them in the Mm -hmm. subject um, to prevent misdiagnosis and mistreatment. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know as an experiencer who's had to deal with this, first off, there's nowhere you can go to get away from it. it. It's happened to me in the middle of major metropolitan areas, it's happened to me out in the bush. Um, everywhere I've gone that I've been for any length of time, it happens. Um, Some would say you're tagged. Um, I don't recall anything in particular, leading to that. But they sometimes I don't know that I'm going to be somewhere 15 minutes before I go there. And they're there, you know, Mm -hmm. in in terms of the encounter. So something's going on. Um, I, I I don't know how they do it. Um, It could be uh, entanglement related you know and when I offer these speculations okay these are coming from my personal experience these aren't things that are, have been resolved through my work at NARCAP no. or through this work we're doing with the right. medical thing or the work I'm doing with AIAA none of this is on the table with any of, of these people right now
0: um, right and you, but, you have the right to have your own personal but, speculations and and frankly Anyone who's talked about this has said we are speculating still. I just watched a video um, by Valet, and he said the same thing. We still have so many unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's unfortunate because I feel like a lot of those should have been answered by now. Okay? (laughs) Like, I don't understand why people, some of them are pretty basic. Why are people not, you know what is it about this in 70 years that people have just sidestepped answering some of the most basic questions?
1: Oh, this has irked me for a long time. And, um, some, some of you within earshot may have may know a little bit about me and NARCAP and Dr. Haynes and all that, uh, Dr. Haynes retired in 2015. Um, there's a little drama around it, but m- mainly he, he was, He was ready to retire he'd been telling me he was going to for years and when that happened a good portion of our team stepped away and this included dr Vallee and dr heisch um and others some are dealing with health issues you know some dealing with aging and so on but the team basically stepped away and suddenly i found myself in clear air where i I could make decisions and structure things the way I, I, i felt were appropriate as somebody with real exposure because in all those years that I worked with those guys, they never treated me like I had exposure. I, I was a, kind of an interesting curiosity, but they never really asked me anything. Um, I spent most of my time protecting their reputation and by not discussing anything that I'd been through, you know, publicly. Uh, and at the time, that's that was the right thing to do in 2000 through, you know, 2018, 19. Anyway, you need to be careful about what you say and how you say it. You still do. But but. I can actually say that i have exposures now and say it say it to a roomful of engineers um, taking ground uh, i can't say that i can't share everything and all my suspicions and when i do i share them in a technical context like i said you know the idea of entanglement may have a role in how they're able to find us uh, they may i don't know instead it could be passive it doesn't have to give off a, a signal i guess is my point and they can find you by the dent you make in reality. Um,
0: yeah, I do. I do wonder though if there is some signal that some people just emit because you know, if you look at us, um, you know, with night vision or mm-hmm. you know, look for body temperature, we are emitting something right? all the
1: time, right. all the time, and we're unique.
2: Each of I us mean, is unique.
0: Yes, and and biosignatures are something that NASA is now looking at, trying to understand life on other planets. It's very possible that we have a biosignature individually and uniquely, like you said, um, that is enough. You know, like it stands it out be. like a big number. It and could be. It's, it's also very possible, you know, to get a little weird and woo. <laughs> I'm interested in the biofield, which is mm-hmm. the term that they use for this. It used to be called an aura, but the technical scientific term is the biofield it's very possible that they can see it. We are always thinking about this in human terms, but it's possible they are seeing information in a very real visual way that we cannot.
1: You know, the, that, that's entirely possible. There's also the idea of coherence, um, like you and I are experiencing it right now. Okay, we're at a distance, and we're talking to each other, and we're actually, our brains are going into coherence so that we can dialogue. So we're, we're having a, a, a simpatico brainwave experience over distance. So I don't know in my the one time I saw them stalking me. I was in Oakland and I was on the Bay Bridge interchange and they were about four miles away doing something else. I'm pretty sure they were very low to the ground and um, they did a. Um, they, they sort of turned a little bit and I was watching them and we started turning and going to the west. And then we're making a curve to go south. This was on 880 in Oakland, right? And then this thing went down Highway 24, which intersects Oakland or 880. And when it got, when we came around the curve and they were centered in our windscreen, they stopped. This is all in about 45 seconds of driving, right? And then, and then all of a sudden they just went whack and stopped less than our own length from the windshield of the car, and then proceeded to match the speed of the car going down the road. Um, So my point is acquisition. How do they acquire you, find you, and move into your area? Um, I, when, when they have an agenda to do that, or when they recognize you and they want to do that, they do it. I I really don't have a a good idea of how it's done, but they seem like they pretty well knew what they were doing.
0: Right and you have to wonder if it's just a, a some level it's just curiosity you know they'll just be like why is this human emitting this biosignature why do they have this biofield that might be but not not in all cases i just think that you know this this phenomenon is happening so often that we are sometimes running into some other groups that are curious because if you read deeply about this subject you find out often that supposedly these beings are, you know, explorers, they're scientists, they're researchers. We might just be very curious to them in some cases on the flip side. However, they are also treating us like guinea pigs. (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on.
1: Um, There's there's a couple of points I'll make in that is, is that for me, it's been going on since I was five years old. I'm 62. Uh, it's. I only remember most of two dozen observations that I'm pretty sure were UAP related or, or involved their crews. And um, so I, it's not like it happens to me every time I go outside, you know, um, but it scarred me enough that I think about it before I go outside um, every time. I spend a lot of time in the bush. I live alone in Hawaii out in the bush. Um, I, I spend a lot of time here in Alaska up in the brush and so on. So but I've resolved my sense of mortality in that aspect. I've matured my perspective on life and living, rather than my, you know, suppressed any fear of them. Um, so when we when we when we're sitting here trying to understand the whys of all of this, um, I I go because I have personal exposure. I don't really spend a lot of time on on the on the woo side of things, the speculative side. What I'm looking for are actual you know bricks in the path of, of knowledge right you know one fact leading to the next leading to the next because I want to understand it and I'm not going to whistle past the graveyard and pretend it's not there and and I'm certainly not going to pretend that it doesn't have any implications for us um, and I'm not going to project what I hope it is on it I want to be correct about what it is and understand it properly in the proper context and so the idea that there are implications to data you have a either a belief or an exposure, there are implications to that understanding uh, that go beyond, you know, just, I saw something, it's here, and that says that this type of phenomena exists. It has an agenda. And that is what concerns me. What is? What are the implications for the planet? Because we don't have the capacity to deal with it. We have 195 countries, and we can't agree on anything. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Someone was saying that it could be unifying for us um recently and i immediately thought of i can think of already how it causes more division and just in the ufo community right we have people disagreeing but a perfect example is i don't feel like we should be exploiting their tech um and a lot of people immediately go to let's take their tech and get free energy and stuff like that i feel that's like stealing a car <laughs> like leave it alone it's not ours and we really aren't responsible enough to drive that car
1: (laughs) i think that's the real point it's like handing a suitcase of cash to an addict you know not much good is going to come out of that you know for the for the addict you know it's um uh i i'm concerned that you know once once we start understanding technically how they do some of these things that i mean what better weapon system than something that can make an instantaneous transit surprise is no longer an issue anymore, you know, strap a bomb, to it, park it over Moscow. You know, it, yeah, it's I, the worst. Yeah, the, you know? the, I, I don't have a lot of confidence. And when the military is driving the inquiry, you know,
2: mm-hmm. we
1: expect them to find an exploit and they do it ferociously. We, we want them to do that, but this is something that's bigger and, and mm-hmm. it's existential. And, and yeah, I, I, I'm very much advising caution about any engagement with non-human tech.
0: Well, and we also know that any tech we end up with, if we were successful with exploitation, which, by the way, if you read the FOIAs they've been doing for decades, anywho, if they were successful, any tech we come up with gets replicated immediately by our adversaries. No matter how much mm-hmm. they try to protect us or um, our secrets, our adversaries end up with something very similar. And in fact, not long ago, when I was mid-studying all of this avidly, of course, um, but Lockheed put a saucer outside essentially, and I spoke to someone, by the way, it was DJ, who is Um, familiar with the u.s air force and he said there's no way that they did that by accident because everyone's taking a picture of this thing they're sending a message to our adversaries they're saying look at this really cool thing that we have okay Mm
2: -hmm. so
0: yeah i mean even if we figure it out there's a risk involved with our adversaries we will destroy ourselves very quickly
1: and there's there's another risk with that too in that for example, this is something I've been dealing with because I've been working with the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, um, so it's a, a large professional society of scientists and engineers, and, um, you know, when you look at, at these phenomena and you start looking at their tech and what they can do, and then what we want to do is develop aviation safety modalities that, you know, that'll, that'll mitigate safety factors. Um, related to UAP so ideally maybe retooling the airborne collision avoidance systems and making them more available to the aviation fleets and the commercial systems so that will pick up these things and show them on their their um, uh, collision avoidance radars um, and record them you know this kind of thing would be good Uh, uh, but once if there's a day i'm gonna just i'll just be cautiously speculative if there's a day um once they know that we can see them it will change the dynamic of the relationship between us and them and it puts them in a position to make a decision about acting or not acting and it offers an imbalance to uh what they might consider a homostasis circumstance at the moment where where we don't really know about it other than we kind of know about them and they don't really confirm it. And so there's a, a condition of ambiguity around it that allows them to be without having to do anything major. Now yeah. that we know that they're there, then it re- comes a question of how major their response is.
0: And it makes you wonder about a lot of things. Uh, a lot of people say they think we're a part of some kind of zoo great, who are just, you know, they're guinea pigs in a zoo, right? And other people say they live here, and they're living alongside us, and they're trying to figure out how safe we are on on the planet that they share. You know, there's a lot of question marks about what their motives are, but I will say they seem to be becoming more obvious, and some people perceive that as a step towards, hello, we're here, Hey, we're really here. What the heck is wrong with you? Why are you not communicating with us? (laughs) Like, so there seems to be an indication that there's um, something about to happen essentially.
1: Well, and this is my point. When you change the balance of of the engagement, it's like, you know, as a swordsman, right? I do a move. He doesn't move.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Ideally he moves, I move, he dies, you know, and I have no doubt that that, that's their perspective on physical engagement. Um, I I think that that. um, You know, there are a lot of speculative ideas about it, but what you really need to do is just step back. Imagine yourself in a situation where you don't speak the language of another person. They belong to another culture entirely and you're both armed and you're standing off with each other and it looks like violence is coming. So what do you do? when do you protect yourself you protect yourself when you judge the actions to be threatening when you judge the actions to be threatening so we have to have judgment we have to be discerning and say okay you know they're in our space and they aren't talking to us
0: yeah some people say that they have communicated and they always seem to have this message of you're messing up the planet i feel like sometimes that narrative has been used as an excuse for what they are doing. Yeah, um, I think that that's how they have used that narrative before with um, people who have been abducted. Um, well, look they-
1: at their look at their actions. Okay, you know uh, what have they done to help us offset what they are clearly trying to warn us about? What steps have they taken, and why? Are, why is it only on us when they're willing to lay hands on us? You can't say they aren't willing to. Mm-hmm interfere so yeah so what's, they're
0: literally hands-on yeah
1: so so what's the you know uh, what what are they is this just another narrative I mean we we knew this was coming from the 70s the far as right. the climate change thing goes we already knew that I was taught that in grade school
0: yeah um, and, and I told you what I found out about Sean Mack who went to aerial school and talked to all those kids and the right. kids said um, to him you know, that we're getting too technological and that's one of the reasons the the beings were there to warn us, right? And then I found out John Mack was anti-nuclear arms, anti-nuclear power. And I'm like, was he getting this message through these kids as something to just kind of satisfy him, you know? Like this is, this is the answer they're gonna give to excuse the fact that they had to park outside of a school. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: it's a, I feel, it's a fair question is he operating from a bias does he have an implicit bias you know driving right
0: and do uh, they know that and are they manipulating it i think i think so because one of the people i spoke to um, her name was marie she was taken on a craft she has objects following her constantly and they showed her the planet being poisoned and i said immediately they're telling you why they took you they're telling you why they're taking people and taking their DNA. That's their excuse. That's it's a narrative.
1: Yeah. It's to leave you with something so that you aren't just sitting there spinning in your own head mm-hmm. and, uh, and perhaps doling out negative press for them. Um, they don't want to pollute the, you know, the pool, so to speak.
0: Actually, yeah. when you when you think about it that way, if if they had a publicist, the publicist would say, "Tell everyone we're here to save the planet," <laughs> right? That would be yeah. very popular.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that'll work. That'll work, right? That'll get everybody on board. Um, the the thing is, is that that, and I've mentioned this to to some of the 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 scientists uh, and engineers that I work with, is that if these guys are as good at as they are with With the things that they do, what do you suppose their capacity for surveillance um, and and social engineering is? Mm -hmm. The the ability, you know, uh, take a person that could become a thorn in their side and expose them to something where they're highly anxious all the time to the point where it destroys their marriage. whatever it takes to keep them out of the conversation or, or on the flip flop, expose somebody to them in a way where, where they walk away feeling like they've been touched by the hand of God and they have a mission and now they have a purpose in life, which apparently humans need to have as a purpose. Right. And um, and when they, when we have it, we're supremely happy. Um, and so, so we, it's nothing but good news. Right. And, and so you take that person and give him a big dose of microwave to, um, so that he leaves just really feeling like, like angels are on his shoulders and then turn them loose in the society
0: and i've had talks with experiencers who have been very open about having had both reactions um one experience was very very positive and one was very negative like (laughs) and whitley striber talked about this in communion he said it was like there might have been a psychology experiment aspect to his encounter
1: Well, I would imagine that they probably have a, a number of different things that they're up to with different people. But um, in my situations, everything I ever thought about them came from me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They, yeah, they, and never, I- they never told me anything or said anything. I said it, I felt it. There was a time with the close exposure I had in Oakland where I thought I was kind of special, and uh, but I sat down and thought about it and said to myself, hey, when, when have I ever been special? You know mm-hmm. i i i didn't have a great childhood like a lot of folks in, in earshot, right. and and i i i was always waiting for a purpose and a sense of belonging i always had a feeling that i was going to be involved in something important but um uh so when i got exposed to these things and sort of a confirmation after years of working to be ready for it and finding i wasn't ready for it um you know, I thought I had a mission that I and I thought it involved them and, and it doesn't really. And it's just it's a matter of training my own objective awareness, learning to understand that, that there's a bigger reality to all of this than my perception of it, and backing up, looking carefully and putting my own community and my own the race of humanity first instead of being quick to abdicate to the other team, you know.
0: Yeah, it's really it's interesting because a lot of people are saying it's like a big game of chess you know the we're a part of a big game of chess and you're right some people have been presented with this as if it were a religious experience mm-hmm. some people are presented as if this is like a miracle you know <clears throat> so that that can be very manipulative and other people are presented with this um, like it's a horror show so you know there's a lot of questions Um, And there's a lot of distrust um, on the people on on both sides, really. Let me
1: me, me just offer the listeners a a perspective here for a second. Um, The Milky Way galaxy became life-friendly about 5 billion years ago. And probably, no evidence to it, but probably saw an explosion of life developing in this galaxy. This isn't the other galaxies, that some that are older right? And that became life-bearing
2: mm-hmm. earlier.
1: Um, so 5 billion years, that's a long time. And for civilizations to overlap and overlap and to develop and grow and to age and mature. And uh, we could very well be part of some very well-established real estate that that's already under others' control, who already mm-hmm. have an agenda for it who are already intervening in our processes and our lives in order to move the planet in a direction they want it to go. It could very well be that there's manipulation from without, because I I, I I doubt very much they're just flying by and visiting. We call them visitors. I think that's probably the least accurate term you could apply to it.
0: You know, so, one of my more um, interesting rabbit holes I went down was that A lot of these beings are described as looking like humans um, and that essentially they came from somewhere else and some of them decided to stay. Um, And then we get the stories of like Nephilim where these beings from uh, space essentially come down and mate with humans Um, and we get stories of, um, you know, this hybridization and manipulation and no one quite knows how we branched away from chimpanzees, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and how, what that common ancestor was. Um, So there's so many question marks. And again, it goes back to we need to understand our own history um, to understand some of these other things um, to understand if if that's possible for part of a big game or a part of a collective, you know, and well,
1: no, I, I'm just agreeing with you. And, and I was going to say that in our own history, it overlaps with ice ages. And each ice age, as it came on, we saw a decline in our, our, our population numbers. And we saw the destruction of whatever edifices we had created during that time, with the glaciers grinding over them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, we find some out of place archaeological evidence. Um, but it, it's pretty clear that humans This is the highest we've come on the technical arc. In between each of those ice ages, Mm -hmm. you know, we had Neolithic type construction and uh, we're able to do some pretty interesting things. But 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 this is the first time we've been what we are today at the level we're at today um, from however we developed, whether we were genetically manipulated from without or whether we arrived here through. Mm More or less natural processes i i um so here we are we're in this moment right where we're we are technical and we're, we're moving outward um, not far not but but there may be a breakthrough on the horizon it could be just around the corner and suddenly it'll put things in reach that we didn't imagine we'd ever get to um, fusion's coming up other mm-hmm. things are happening you know so yeah it could, uh, we could be seeing changes that could actually start moving us into realms that aren't ours or realms that can't be considered ours. We're moving out into other people's turf,
2: yeah. other beings,
1: real estate, you know, and um, it could be star, very Star Trekky out there, you know, in terms of how we have to do things.
0: So one thing I've, I've discovered, because like I said, from the study of humans and trying to understand this is that one of the things that really differentiated us from neanderthals was our desire to be essentially a society a growing society that was a dna change and that actually resulted in our dominance and it's almost like exactly like a virus right it just starts growing together and cooperating the virus essentially will not attack itself. It'll just keep spreading and spreading and spreading, which is what Mm -hmm. we're going to be doing in space. Mm -hmm. You have to wonder, could that have been the manipulation? Could that be what was changed? Because, you know, what, what I'm thinking about here also is that a lot of people say the more advanced society takes over the less advanced society. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's the society that wants to be a big society incorporates the smaller society, absorbs it, swallows it, makes it part of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I just think there's something going on with that. Well, I mean, I, like I
1: said, you know, we, we could very well be moving into well-established real estate and we don't know the rules. Mm-hmm. We don't know who's running the show. Um, and there could well be. They could well have agents among us. Um, either indoctrinated humans or or something else. Um, uh, they 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 certainly could have an an AI that would be almost unrecognizable from a, a living being. You know that um, it's
0: very easy to explain a human being in terms of a robot. There's very a little difference between the two. <laughs>
1: we are. You can get real mechanistic about it. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know.
1: Um, and you can be that way about the other team as well, uh, which I think is your point. Um, so, you know, all of these issues, you know, they, they I, I come to the study of from exposures and a lot of thought, you know, and, and a constantly changing perspective. I'm I'm ready to pivot at any time with new information, provided it meets standards of information, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, you know, I, I, I ran NARCAP for 22 years studying aviation safety issues because they are uh, they are a threat to aviation safety um, in a number of ways. Um, Mm. So we wrote papers on that. We probably wrote 50 papers on the darn things. You couldn't couldn't get peer review. Uh, But then last summer when the ODNI report came out, they cited three primary concerns with the reality of UAP, national security, aviation safety and uh, the stigma. And like two weeks later, I got a call from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics asking if I would present to their membership at a, mm-hmm. one of their conferences, which I did. And then uh, a month later, they called myself and a couple of other people that had also done presentations to consider helping them create a, a program, which we did. Mm-hmm. And now we're rolling it out in a big way right now. Um, right. And it's probably the most empowered um, scientifically empowered program I um, in the public domain
0: um, yeah most likely. and i have a feeling at some point if people want to stop reinventing the wheel the people who are starting to build up to do the same for nasa will connect with that mm-hmm. galileo project maybe will connect with that like people keep reinventing the wheel this is one of the things i've observed that you know, like if we could just get on the same page.
2: Well, <laughs> you know, what's
1: what's important here is neutrality, so that, that and independence, so that mm. whatever findings arise from anywhere, there there's qualified analysis to to determine whether it's of value and it and and it can be trusted as an unbiased engagement. So, on one hand, yes, we talk to NASA. Yes, we talk to DoD. Yes, we talk to Galileo Project. We don't work with them. What we do, though, Mm at um, AIAA, one of the things we do is we have calls for paper. So it Mm -hmm. gives all of these other groups a chance to have their work peer-reviewed and and put in front of engineers and scientists who could make heads or tails out of it Mm -hmm. Uh, and then further that examination through that pipeline and hopefully out because the work we're doing is U.S.-based, but like I'm, I'm responsible for international outreach is kind of, one of my functions right now. And hopefully we'll find a way to see our interests infiltrate other aviation systems and other programs around the world.
0: Well, that is actually one of my questions. (laughs) And it occurs to me, I haven't even really gotten to my questions, Ted. Um, But one of my questions was about France and Chile and your involvement um, with them in the past for NARCAP, if you wanted to provide any input about um, what they have done or, or how they're engaged with this topic.
1: Sure. Um, the, the, I'll start with the Chileans. We, we, we signed probably the first research agreement with a government research team, an international research agreement, NARCAP and the Chilean government team, uh, CEPA-A, the committee for the study of anomalous aerial phenomena. And, uh, it's located in their, um uh, director, of aviation, uh, it's run by their military, uh, and uh, they they study UAP. Um, and part of that is uh, they approached us to to work on aviation cases, which we which we've done a bit of, um, and we maintain more or less a relationship with them. It's kind of they they've changed leadership uh, in the last few years, and I've changed the NARCAP process. So uh, chances are, what we're going to see is is them get involved with the AIAA program, and I'm going to be gently phasing NARCAP back as AIAA steps forward and takes up more of my time and, and is, is more empowered to do what we set out to do at NARCAP. Uh, the French team is located in CNES in their space agency. Uh, and it's called GIPAN. G-E-I-P-A-N. And and they're, uh, they, they're one of the oldest government research teams in the world. They've been doing this since the mid 70s. And uh, 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 they provided uh, uh, some data. Look, they collect data across their entire bureaucracy of government. Um, so the the gendarmerie and the police and the military, the um, air traffic control pilots are all trained to make reports. Um, and so they've been collecting data that way for quite some time. And and one thing I would point out is that in all of the countries that have released UFO data they all contain cases involving safety factors and UFOs. So,
0: yeah, I'm definitely going to get to the safety factors. But before I do that, I just have to point out, like Italy has some really public information now. Mm -hmm. Japan apparently is really stepping up on this. We know Mm -hmm. there's some stuff um, in Canada that's getting a little bit more publicity right now. Um, Obviously, there was a ton in the UK, even though they're not super cooperative on the surface about this topic we know they're still looking at it Mm -hmm. Um, so i'm wondering if if part of that outreach program you're going to start bringing in some of these other players brazil with their conference or i should say their um hearings recently you know if some of these other players are going to start getting on board with you
1: well they will but but the issue is we're really kind of judged by the company we keep so we need to be selective about it and Mm -hmm. careful um uh, the the idea is to get to the facts, not to come with with beliefs in hand. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, we want to be careful. Um, mm-hmm. But we are, you know, that's all on my list as far as outreach goes. I, I'd like to see it go to uh, ICAO, International Civil Aviation, or that's, that's at the UN level. Um, it, through NARCAP, we talked to them a little bit um, early in the 2000s, but we haven't carried the ball into that space very far. Um,
0: Well, you know that uh, Russia and China have been working together on this. There's proyas about it. They even have an international UFO conference in China with uh, American scientists that go there. People don't realize we're engaged with China on this topic. We know that for a while we had uh, Russia's cooperation. In fact, Carl Sagan, was asked to go help them build the Russian UFO office.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: There's a FOIA about that.
1: I was going to say, interesting they would choose him. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm, I'm aware of uh, all of this. India is stepping up too. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and we're actually starting to get a little bit of information out of Africa and uh, Arabic nations. Um, not <laughs> More than in the past, but still not... We're still basically effectively not hearing from almost half the planet um, because the Chinese don't share a lot and neither do the Russians. Uh, and I will tell you that the Chinese have stepped up their activity around my website, you know, pretty major. Mm. I used to get a visit every 24 hours. Uh, just to, It was a state hit just to see if the character count had changed on my website, you know, and there was no IP address linked to it. Wow. Then, now I've got city IPs. In china banging off my my website pretty steadily
2: Uh, well there's a lot
0: about china that's out there already if anyone wants to go look (laughs) like i have stuff under the ufo connector on a lot of these countries i will say regarding africa there's so many different countries in africa that i find it intimidating to tackle that um i did of course find um, some stuff from south africa there's some really notable cases you know the aerial school in zimbabwe mm-hmm. there was another case involving um, a minister um you know that was pretty significant i mean how many times do you hear a minister come out and talk about it on the news but yeah but but it's intimidating um to try to tackle that many countries and dig into it i'm a little uh i was interested that you said india's stepping up because obviously there's a lot there including historically um, they, they have a lot in their text about it. Um, they're some of the religious texts mm-hmm. about um, some flying objects. So I would really like to see what they come up with.
1: Yeah, uh, you, you know everybody should be coming to the table on this. i, I, I you know I, I brought up China and I brought up Russia. Sure, there's a national security issue around that, and there's suspicion that we have as Americans around motives on this. but but mm-hmm. I would remind listeners that no country really has a right to this data any more than they have a right to control data about Ebola outbreaks or anything mm-hmm. else. We need to know these things. The world mm-hmm. needs to know these things. And I'm not sure that that the average guy on the ground needs to know these things. And i, I want to kind of I know that sort of flies in the face of our freedom loving compatriots here. But um, if there's an occupation going on, does the world need to know it if it's going to continue the way it's continued versus living under the knowledge of an oppression every day uh for a good part of the population you know these are i don't have the answers to these questions but i but they are questions and they're they're relevant you know to the the psychological well-being the mental environment that humans occupy uh day to day and how how do we deal with that when we have something that that's pretty well outclasses us yeah i think
0: that's the thing that scares a lot of people yeah so I'm going to ask you some questions and I'm looking at the time. Usually I try to stay at an hour and a half. So I'm going to try to do these pretty quick. These were the questions that I didn't quite get to. I'll talk fast. I'll okay. Talk fast. The first one was, um, do you still get a lot of pilot reports?
1: I, I, I get a steady, okay. steady pilot reports, but it's really kind of interesting because now uh, I see a lot of podcasters and stuff soaking up pilot reports and using them to kind of, you know, uh, raise their own profiles, I guess you would say. And they never kick the stuff over to those of us that are actually doing the work.
2: You know, they're writing
1: the papers and they're actually trying to get something done. So uh, I I think, I think more pilots are willing to talk about it now and a lot of more historical cases are cropping up, which is good.
0: I think part of the problem is again, not knowing where to go. Like the FAA when they, for a while were telling people, to call Bigelow. <laughs> like that was because SAP was happening. They didn't know it, right? Um, and, you know, even experiencers, not, they don't know about move on, right? No. So I think that's just a matter of, you know, getting the FAA to make that claim, that declaration about who to call and be, be firm on it would be really helpful. I think right now it says um, New Fork So call New Fork.
1: Well, my understanding is now that they're, they're shunting it straight to DOD, and that's just oh. in the last couple of weeks. Um, and the whole point is that that once we know that there's a data stream and it's leaving the aviation system before it, cases that involve safety factors end up in front of safety planners, right, then there's a relevant need on the civilian side to know.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so through American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, we champion commercial and general aviation uh, and their concerns around the subject. So what we want to do is see the the reporting channels, you know, clearly delineated and available, reporting encouraged, and then we want access to the data that's relevant for us and our work.
0: Well, and, you know,
1: that's where the tug of war comes in with trying to find a balance with national security and, and so on. So we have our work cut out in front of us, but that's what we're looking at.
0: There's so many issues when it comes to those parts of the data, for instance, because L.A. was talking about, you know, we've made this database, this huge database. It's a warehouse of information. But the behind the scenes aspect to that is that Bigelow paid for some of that. He got MUFON to give out, you know, personal information of people, you know, and and then some people, they report to entertainers the behind the scenes of that is that then the story becomes their story and they can change it and make it however they want it to appear on the screen. I run
1: you know? into this all the time. Podcasters do this too, right? You know, people are trying to build image, right? Either by right. affiliation or authority because they have control over a narrative. And, um, I, find it, you know, a bit childish, you know, having had the be Jesus scared out of me by these things. I, 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 I see all of that as pretty juvenile, you know, um, if you're getting aviation cases, go ahead and talk about them. But shunt the data to somebody like us that knows what to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, don't don't just sit on it to aggrandize yourself. And I see this, you know, with number of people. Uh, there are cases that are percolating right now out there in the Twitterverse that are um, they're probably pretty good aviation cases. And they're being dwelled upon by people who are trying to advance their own credibility with it. Um, that's what I don't like about ufology, and it's part of the reason I've turned my back on it. I pretty much, I really am not in this for followers. A lot of people have no idea who I am, but I'll tell you, I've influenced an awful lot of what you deal with in ufology every day. And I didn't do it because I wanted to be famous. I, I Everything I've done is about trying to get to the bottom on this and and understand our predicament, what's going on, because I've seen it, you know.
0: Yeah. So. Okay. Let's try to get to some more of these questions. I know there's one that's sitting on Twitter I have to pull out because someone DM'd me a question earlier. Okay. Um, ha- um, well, let me go to one that Max McCabe brought to my attention. He said there was a, a report of a plane, um, I, I want to say it was a Chinese or Japanese airline, actually being dented. And I want to maybe the '90s um, big giant dent on the news (coughs) plane from an object that wasn't identified. How often do you hear of actual damage to a craft from an unidentified object?
2: Just in general,
1: it happens. Um, We've got newspaper clippings, um, you know, pilots saying they were hit by a flying saucer. Um, This kind of bent metal. Um, It's hard to validate it because you don't get access. You don't. You know, there's. no guys with narcap windbreakers and ball caps swarming all over the plane you know to, to get that data uh, frankly there ought to be but you know <laughs> um, so that that's the problem with that um, and I will say that that bird strikes have been recorded at extremely high altitudes you know in the 30,000 feet zone aircraft have hit birds and you know they know they hit birds um, so you know there's there's that possibility when you see the in, impact evidence after um, but you know, our work at Narcap, looking at safety factors, we did find examples where we could suspect that UAP might be involved in bent metal, uh, and there were cases where we could suspect that catastrophe was involved. You know, it was w- that UAP exacerbated a, a catastrophic incident? And, but the problem is, is that our our our, our data set is small. It's America.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: need to be looking at global data now, and and right. to understand. And there are these stories crop up out of every country, uh, and and I think it's entirely possible that we've lost aircraft and souls to um, UAP related incidents. I know the Philip Mantell case is an example of a yes, you know, yeah. Uh, I
0: think, yeah, the the interference to the systems of these craft may be accidental, but it still ends the same. You mm-hmm. know, it might be they didn't mean to cause our, our stuff to freeze, but it still does. And um, the other
1: side of it is that some of these incidents are quite dynamic and and the uh, control inputs by the air crew could result in catastrophe, depending. They'll happen at any phase of flight. So mm-hmm. if you're in takeoff and suddenly it's right there or you're right. landing, right, and pop, then what do you do, right? How do you throttle up and get away from right. it? You don't know where it's going to go. They're unpredictable. Right. that's part of the problem that's one of the safety factors with them is their unpredictability and the fact that the air crews aren't trained uh to even know that they exist
0: and needing the increased sensors i was thinking when you were talking about that some of the technology they're considering um i feel like civilian science has gone pretty far with that it might be worth looking into like people are talking about infrasound they're mm-hmm. talking about the frequencies. There's if I, I could imagine with the rate minds working on it, about five different ways to sense their arrival.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, let me just say I, we've got engineers, top minds. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, these conversations are taking place in a number of areas, including the ones I'm in.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: Um, so <laughs> this this isn't really a question. But you and I have always talked about how at some point we need to talk about orbs. And since it's um, getting so late into the podcast, I won't ask it as a question. But can you just confirm again how dangerous orbs are? Confirm? (laughs) Yes. Because I feel like orbs are the most dangerous UAV. Do you agree with that?
1: You know... I've seen them. I've been close to them. Um, not often. A couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are aware that, that um, out of 57 cases we have of EM effects on aircraft, they all involve balls of light. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand how plasma is generated and some of that could be hard on human physiology. Um, if they're quantum systems and they penetrate your body, they may not be good for you. Um, I don't I don't have personal experience with knowing that, that they're dangerous or not, but I would suggest that anything like it, that you stay away from it, you know, that you give it distance that you don't, I don't understand why people want to have UFO encounters. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Why would you want to ask for that?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. For, for instance, um, <laughs> Jesse, who would have been great to add input on this is working on the electromagnetic um, effects. And mm-hmm. one thing that people don't realize in the movie, when the UFO comes along and stops a car, usually the car doesn't start again. It's, it's that's not what happens. It doesn't start again when the UFO goes away, it stops right. it and it is done. The car is done. You're going to have to replace something. So um,
1: and clear yeah. off the, the distributor. Yeah.
0: Right. So we're very lucky when, like, for instance, a helicopter is interfered with and it does start again, but or instruments do get back on track. But um, there's there's some serious stuff that happens when they get. Yes. Ready. You know,
1: we get issues with autopilots, either disengaging or aircraft turning. Um, it might might be related to alternating magnetic fields, we could guess um, we get um, occasionally we've had it's in the literature that there are burns that uh from close exposures mm-hmm. uh night blinded night blindness uh I had a case where a air crew tried to communicate with this light form and they turned up their landing lights and it were it flared up and nobody could see to fly the plane um there are things like that i i as far as that you know Orbs being dangerous themselves, you know, Les Velez and I were in a whole bunch of them one night and I think we're both okay physically that we didn't suffer any anything adverse from it. Um, and we were within 12 feet of a huge one at one point. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how dangerous they are. It, it may, may be the individual. It may be the, the operating mode if, it, if it's a technology. Um,
0: I think of them as, as a... Uh the drones for non-human intelligence. I really do. And I think there's a lot of different kinds. And I especially caution people about the orange-red ones because those mm-hmm. seem to be very prevalent around our military.
1: You know, so, in, um, in in physics, uh, if you were going to assign that, um, that color to a plasma, you would suspect that it, it was the emission frequency of helium. OK, and you might feel that a little more because there's a little more of it in the air than some other things. But um, the I've had a kind of a pet idea around them for a while that they're quantum systems they uh that they they can organize themselves to be different things uh, and they're entangled so they can relay information between them and entangled systems that they're related to wherever the hell they are anywhere. They can be anywhere, literally anywhere in the universe. Uh, uh, whatever it's recording here is being seen real time there with no lag. Um, that's how entanglement works. And 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 if, if these are entanglement systems, you know, so think of a, a system of quantum particles, right? Just a ball of them moving around all nice and organized. They're able to move into shapes if they need to. They're able to pr- perform functions if they need to. Uh, they can be, manned in the sense that somebody can be operating them. So you see a sense of personality in it or a sense of behavior about it, something organic in it. It seems to follow the, the muses of the mind. Um, or they can be driven by AI, you know, and deployed by an AI that's got other things going on.
2: Who knows?
0: And, yeah. and, and as we said before, what's the difference between a biological being and an AI? Because yeah. our brains are electrical systems. They're filled with wires like that's what our synapses are right i don't i don't see a huge difference I, I people have talked about whether or not ai can have consciousness i think they can i think well that I, think,
1: the- I think they can transcend all of that um uh, and become beings that we can't recognize that, that right. i mean when you think about it you say okay an, uh, an ai awakens well let's talk about machine time we're talking mm-hmm. nanoseconds and it's evolving and it's not doing it in little chunks either so it can, it can transcend us in a matter of seconds.
0: Right. And, and, and all, you know. people talk about these objects, some of them being alive, the craft themselves being alive. And I've had thoughts about how that could be possible. And it's not very hard to think of. Um, fungus put on the outside of metal could create something that's alive. Or nanobots that are biological. Essentially, we're making those ourselves sure. now great so all the impossible things are not impossible is what i found out you know (laughs) And, and actually we're pretty steadily going on the same path as um whatever's flying these and which is why sometimes when people talk about them being superior and more advanced i'm like not that much more not much you know at this point not that much further ahead you know i would argue You know, until I can see whether or not they can paint or create or carve stone, I'm not going to agree that they're particularly more advanced, other than scientifically. But,
1: well, and and that would all that also might offer an insight into their intentions and their nature um, Mm -hmm. as well. If we don't see art, we don't see what we consider, you know, expressive and individuated aspects of their nature then they may not be expressive and individuated, you know. Um, so in any case, yeah, we, we there's there's a lot to this. It's the trick is not to. Um, not to cling to the ideas, we need to stack the data and we need right. definitive data. Um, I know how to get definitive data. My problem has been money um, and I don't need a lot of it. I just need enough uh, to support a stakeout with with the right kind of equipment. Um, right. I, because I know where where to see these things, where they come and go, some of the places they come and go. And I would, uh,
0: I would ask you where, but I don't want to create tourist spots.
1: <laughs> yeah, ones in Hawaii and ones in uh, 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 in the states, but the um, the chances of you actually seeing anything there are kind of limited. I, I I had been told for years that there was something there, and then when the priestess took me under her wing then she found out that I do this work and said oh bro they they come from over there and they go over there and you know we see it all the time and I'd heard this several times and one night I was there and I saw it too um but I'd been there thousands of hours and never seen anything so I wouldn't necessarily you know but but the bottom line is we need definitive data at least something to start with that's definitive And then we can ask more questions and do more work but but we need something really really good
2: um and i know know where we
1: could try to get it um but i right now it's a matter of funding i
0: just yeah i was going to say i really do appreciate when people go into data like cheryl costa did with her book because Mm -hmm. um and 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 her wife linda miller Costa. Um, I just want to point out like, for instance, people are very wrong about longitude and lats and hotspots. And if you read the book, you data told us the truth about where it's really happening and what's going on and what in what's that data indicates some truths and no one had done that before. So why?
1: (laughs) Hats off to Cheryl and co because I've been watching her for a while and mm -hmm. it's good work coming out of there. Um, And, and, the independence and neutrality is, is a proper stance. Uh, mm-hmm. I appreciate her perspective on all of it. And, um, and the data ought to be helpful. The, the trick is getting it from her into the hands of people like that I'm working with. Right. Uh, and that can be done. You know, we're looking, uh, I just got interviewed by, by somebody who was uh, collecting, uh, uh, they were trying to understand the uh, um, research environment in the public domain. And so they, they were going around interviewing those of us that have programs or are active uh, uh, as part of a, a, a screening process for uh, some other government programs that are looking into this. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that, that Cheryl will come up on the radar with them. And if not, I'm, I'm one of several that'll mention her.
0: Well, I hope so. Cause she's been sending this book out to people for a long time saying, Hey, I have a lot of data and I can get more data. Please pay attention. Mm-hmm. And it's sad that civilians are having to do that. I have read so many FOIAs. I have looked at this stuff in a very serious manner. And I'm like, why do I hear all these people giving out misinformation? Why do people say they don't know anything about orbs? Like, you know, there's so much in the FOIAs about it. So I would volunteer to work for the government. I would.
1: (laughs) Well, hey, you know, I think you'd be ideal. Um, Having worked with you this long, I think there's nothing wrong with that, and 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 they we do need to be tapping some of the thinkers we've got out here. There's some we need to stay the hell away from, but um, but there's a, there's a couple of folks out there like Cheryl that, that have something to contribute. Right, and, uh,
0: people who are who know mm-hmm. that there was a nuclear nuclear issue and shouldn't have been. <coughs> at the hearing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, So some people who, you know. Okay, so I have this question from Lisa Bowden. Um, I feel like we have answered some aspects of her question. Um, she essentially just wanted to know if you believe these are extraterrestrial. And of course, um, you don't have to go into this too much if you don't want to. She wanted to know if you'd seen the beings and what the smell might be and if you had touched them i think she wants to know tactile information
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting um okay so so what was the first part of the question i i i was if,
0: if you thought they were extraterrestrial
1: Oh, okay yeah that's that's a good point um because i'm because i'm driven by what i've seen first and building my data out from that. Um, The first natural conclusion, if they're not human is that they're extraterrestrial. And that's kind of where I sit right now, because I haven't seen anything that tells me that they're anything else. Uh, I've seen their technology at work. And it's 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 mighty fine. No question. It's miraculous. Um, But it follows rules of physics and physics in this universe. Um, And so in that sense, I'm not ready to hand it over to ultra terrestrials or ultra dimensionals or any other type of explanation for this, that if this involves a non-human intelligence, it's probably an extraterrestrial non-human intelligence. And and I'll just sit with that until, until more information comes and I need to adapt, you know, Uh, but, but that's where I'm at right now. It doesn't mean to dis, to disregard other ideas or other concepts on it, but if you're going to let data lead you, then data leads to extraterrestrials first. And we don't have anything that says more than that at this
0: point. I really I I personally, before we answer the other part of that, prefer mm-hmm. just non-human intelligence because it covers so much. It does. Yeah, because for instance, if they are extraterrestrial, they could also have decided to move in a billion years ago, you know, and still be extraterrestrials that live now here and then are therefore ultra-terrestrial. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And they could also have the technology to go to a different dimension, which is really hard for me to understand, even though there's some theoretical physics on that. Mm -hmm. But
2: Mm -hmm.
0: they could if they have that technology, they could be all of the above, guys. Everything Could
1: could be. But but what we need to understand is what they actually are. And if we want to know what they actually are, we have to stick stick to results driven research and data. And, and quality objective observation and awareness uh, and and because there's a lot for example we don't understand their biological or cultural imperatives uh they they're they their their social structures and what and the biology behind them that runs that are they mole rats that communicate by chemistry you know and smells I mean it could be anything they could be a hive mind they could be they could be a a, a hybrid of of AI and and biological beings, it, it could be any number of things that they could be. But what we need to see is that they are first, and then we start asking what they are. Okay, and and, and we move forward. Um, I come down on the side that they are because I've seen them. Okay, um, and I've, I'll never try and sell that to anyone. I, I never have. Um, you know, I'll never be standing on a podium in front of engineers and telling them about that. And unless there's a, a major sea change in all of this. Um, but yeah, I've seen them and, and seen them twice and uh, um, um, I've never, I've been close to them and I've been touched by them, but I've never been, um, I've never touched them.
0: Which okay. probably is oh, probably for the best.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> for both of us.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, and I
1: will I say, did... we'll say that I saw two permutations of them. I saw one that was in the five foot range and then one that was much smaller and the ones that were smaller involved an incident that I have trauma about and inju- injuries from. And mm-hmm. and it's all part of my own personal anxiety around seeing this topic move in a direction that's mm-hmm. productive and that follows the rules of science, not my fears or beliefs.
0: The other thing um, <clears throat> I've come to when it comes to trying to understand species and stuff like that is on our planet, there was a time, as I mentioned before, where there were multiple hominids. Yeah. And we keep assuming that there's, you know, like just one species would come from one planet. <laughs> but there could be multiple hominids, or, well, I guess they wouldn't call them hominids, but there could be humanoid, humanoids. Yes, yes multiple yeah. humanoids from one planet. Like everyone okay. just assumes they're different planets, they're coming from different planets. They all of these beings, including ourselves, could have a common shared ancestor, yeah. which is very likely considering that when people talk about the Big Bang, they say it came from one point.
1: Right. And everything well, spread out. And and then the flip side of it is that it, you know, we're talking. I mean, the biologists would ask, you know, why bilateral symmetry? Why do they have heads and two eyes and, and two arms and two legs? And, and you know, why, except for external Appearances in general, do they look like us? You know, and and the answer is either it's fairly common out there, or there's a relationship, or they made us to look like them, or right. you know or... something along those lines. And you know, but the point is, is that first off, we have to understand that there's a they, and I I know that my opinion is not prevailing, and I don't I don't ever talk about it. You know, amongst amongst the 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 engineering folk that yeah. I, I deal with. Um, and, and I really, you know, I, the context I bring it up in is in the work that we do, because I've had to live with it. It's had fallout in my life. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why I've stood up, helped stand up this program that we're working on. Um, and that's
0: and the, that's UAPMC, in case you guys U, are
1: yeah, wondering. UAP, <laughs> UAP Medical Co- Coalition that you and I and Jessica
2: mm-hmm. are
1: putting together. So um, that's been my attempt at fixing myself and helping others mm-hmm. around the subject. And it's based on again you know there's no money changing hands in any of these things i i I refuse to uh, cultivate image and affiliation with others i just i'm just trying to help you know and based on my own exposures
0: and i can say just um talking about the sensory stuff the touching and things like that that's where it gets frustrating because we hear reports about for instance, someone touches an entity and there can be some damage as a result. And it would be so helpful if we had some real data on that now that we could offer out uh, to warn people, don't touch them, you know? Um, Cause that's a medical concern. And then we do hear different reports about smells. Um, often it's an ozone or sulfur smell that is described. Um, Linda Thompson said it was like burned cardboard, Um, which is also something that Whitley Stryber talked about, like a burned cardboard smell Um, in, in the case um, in Brazil, they talked about an ammonia sulfur smell. Um, So there's some little things like that. They're physical things. I would love to have some good data on not just hearsay.
1: You know, what we did with NARCAP was we picked a pie slice of, of the phenomena and, and, where it overlaps with people. We chose aviation cases. And then we needed to understand what UAP were about. So we threw all of their characteristics as reported on the wall, everything, and then started looking at what repeated.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: and then started pulling those up and looking more closely. And about, I don't know, two years before the five observables came out, I had written a paper describing the five observables, you know, what the things that, that, that.
2: Not a um, coincidence.
1: <laughs> yeah, the 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 flight characteristics of UAP, right? So
0: I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the people who studied the stuff in OSAP probably read your paper.
1: Could could have, you know. It, the, the whole point is that that um, uh, we're in agreement, you know. <laughs> and my paper is uh, an exercise in logic because we don't have numbers, right? We don't mm-hmm. know what a UAP weighs or how fast it's going. But but we see common characteristics in their movement and their nature. Now, applying the same thinking to people with exposures to non-human. Entities. Do the same thing, you throw it all up against the wall and see what repeats, Mm -hmm. pull that out and see what kind of pattern that shows you, you know, and you can do this over and over again with various aspects of the phenomena and come up with a distillation that will give you a general overview of who they are, what they're about, how they're doing it, and why. Right. Um, and it, it, it's it's a larger scope than, than just this little pie slice of things, but it can be done, and, um, and I, along with results-driven research, this should be done also, in my opinion. We don't want to be caught flat foot with this. If, if, mm-hmm. if, if, this re- if I'm not crazy and these things are real, right, then there are implications, and we, we need to be correct about them. Uh, we need to be looking at a at a bigger world, uh, doing doing deeper deeper studies.
0: And you know, I'm hoping that all the people who have done studies in the past, who are currently doing studies in places like Harvard and Princeton, um, will be a little bit more charitable with giving that information back, and a mm-hmm. little bit less ego driven. I know for a fact that. I just to make to put this out there, Gary Nolan is not one of the ego-driven people. I know that for a fact. He is very interested in this topic. It's a sincere interest. But uh, we have run into some other people who are yeah. Yeah. I won't name any names, but there's definitely other people who their motives are very different on this. So um yeah. You know, I've definitely surpassed my time with you today, Ted. I'm, I really appreciate you gave us so much time I've, and the fact that we got to mull over some of these things together. It's great to get to do that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we're going to continue talking outside of this recording. But <laughs> but for those who are listening, I'm sure they appreciate it as well. Can you please let them know where they can find you?
1: Oh, yeah, I, I try to be accessible. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on uh at NARCAP, Ted underscore row at NARCAP.org. Um, uh, you can follow up on the AIAA program at on Twitter at AIAA underscore UAP. Um, so you can see how we're doing with our engineering plan. We we have a website coming up on that, by the way. Um, the UAP Med program is in motion and, and uh, we're, we're going to have a few more conversations about that in public, I'm sure. Um, uh, and uh, so so that anybody that wants to reach out i try to give you a fair response you know i can't fix all your problems i can't you know i can't solve certain questions but but if there's something i can help with feel free to reach out uh, try to be there
0: you're very charitable with your time and we much appreciate that my pleasure so th- thank you again and thank you to everyone listening this was Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings Podcast Network. If you need to find me, I'm at Study of UAPs on Twitter, LinkedIn, and so forth. You can find me at ufoconnector.com. And also, you can find me with UAPMC mail. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Bye. Thank you, everybody.